This show is supported by another incredible confidence-boosting podcast, Women of Impact with Lisa Bilyeu. Lisa's story of how she went from zero confidence to becoming the co-founder of the billion-dollar Quest company and a best-selling author will inspire you no matter where you are on your journey. Listening to Women of Impact will give you the confidence to live life on your own terms without any excuses. From building confidence and setting boundaries to getting you from where you are to where you want to go, Lisa's show will help you get there. Tune in to Women of Impact with Lisa Bilyeu wherever you listen to podcasts. How do we stop putting that pressure on kids? In the book, I went, I went looking for who were the healthy strivers. Who were the kids who were doing well despite the pressure? What did their parents do at home? What was friendship like? What was school like? And the kids who did the best were the kids who felt like their value, who they were at their core, never fluctuated, that their parents loved them and valued them no matter what. And guess what? It makes sense. When you feel as a child that your worth is unconditional... Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a guest whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record it all from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now let's dive into today's episode. Do you often feel like you're not good enough? Do your kids' self-esteem depend on how much they're achieving? Do you worry that your kids feel a lot of pressure to perform or even to be perfect? If any of those things sound familiar, stay tuned. I'm talking to Jennifer Wallace about why today's kids struggle to feel good enough. Jenny's a journalist whose work frequently appears in outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Jenny, who has three children of her own, wanted to investigate what she calls toxic achievement culture. It's the pressure kids feel to achieve and the feelings of emptiness they experience despite their performance. What she discovered led to a new book called Never Enough, Some of the things she talks about today are how striving for achievement actually holds kids back, how to help kids develop healthy self-confidence, and what we can do to help them finally feel good enough. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Jenny's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Jenny Wallace on how to raise resilient kids in the midst of a toxic achievement culture. Jenny Wallace, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, Amy. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about Never Enough, your new book, because I don't think it's a topic that a lot of people are talking about, at least not in public. As a therapist, it's probably the most common thing people will say in my therapy office is we, everything, almost everything boils down to people not feeling like they're good enough, whether they come in for depression, for anxiety, or pretty much anything else. We'll often boil it down to in the end, they'll say, no matter how much I do, I just never feel good enough. Hmm. And in your book, you talk a lot about parenting and kids, but I think it affects grownups probably just as much as kids. What do you think? I think absolutely. I I think it is a universal feeling 
Um, and I don't think it's a feeling that is just uh, in the United States. I think I think a lot of people today, uh, and we can get into why, um, are feeling like they are never enough. Um, for me, I think it a lot of it, you know, goes back to our uh, hyper capitalistic culture where, you know, you you have to keep feeding the machine. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're you're as good as your next deal. You're as good as your next. A, you're as good as your, you know, anyway, I, I think it is a treadmill that, that we are all on. Uh, and it's a really painful one and it's very isolating. It is. And that high of achievement doesn't last very long, right? We think once we get to that next hurdle, once we cross that finish line, like, oh, then I'll finally feel good enough. And you get there and you feel like, oh, but if I only did a little more or I only excelled in one other thing, then finally I'd feel good enough. And it's like this constant need to try to fill ourselves with more awards, more trophies, more accolades from other people, but we just can't get there. Do you feel like it's getting worse over time though? I do. I think it's getting worse. Um, and I, I lay out in the beginning of the book uh, sort of the, the, the reasons why I think it's getting worse. But I would say the, the big takeaway for me was, because I was thinking, you know, just going back to parenting, like why was my childhood in the 1970s so different than my children's childhood today. Uh, and so I, I actually spoke with historians and economists. And what, what I was hearing was that macroeconomic forces. So we know that, you know, money and parenting can go together, you know, in, in where we live and what extracurriculars we could afford. But actually, it's the macroeconomic forces of our environment that can create this never enough feeling. Um, for parents and for kids. So, you know, in the in the 70s when I was growing up, life was generally more affordable. You could afford housing, um, you know, higher ed was more affordable, um, healthcare was more affordable. And over the last few decades, uh, you know, we have ushered in this huge inequality, this big divide between the haves and the have-nots. We have um, crushed the middle class we have globalization, hyper-competition. And what these sort of macroeconomic forces are doing is, is parents are absorbing these fears and these anxieties um, that we have to like raise our kids to be enough to, to bridge them over the divide. Um, and uh, so I, I do think it has become, it has become a bigger part of our culture. And I think we have personalized instead of contextualized what's going on in the world around us. So instead of realizing that the world, you know, beyond us has become more competitive, we internalize it and we think we're not enough or, um, you know, in our parenting and in, our, in raising our offspring. So I do think it's gotten worse. And I think macroeconomic forces are at play. That makes sense. And we know from a psychology standpoint that our anxiety spills over into other areas of our lives. I'm convinced people are way more anxious today than they were 50 years ago. And we're seeing a lot more anxiety, especially in the post-pandemic world. But now that people are really anxious about life in general, I imagine for parents that trickles down to their kids in the way that they're going to treat their kids. And I see it and I hear it all the time from parents. Like if my kid fails the science test, he's not going to get into a great college. And if he doesn't get into a great college, he'll never have a good job. And if he doesn't have a good job, the family is not going to do well. 
all about just the science test on Friday, but it's this extreme anxiety that's driving parents, I think, to to drive kids to do better. So that makes sense to me that you explain it that way. Yeah, it is. Um, it's something that I, you know, I before researching this book, I also saw take place in my own home. Like every every September, I would get this like frenetic parental energy that I needed to sign my kid up for the right extracurricular activities. Like what's, what do I have them signed up for too much? Not enough. What, you know, latent talents and interests am I neglecting in my own kids? How could I set them up for success? And, um, approaching parenting with that scarcity mindset, not only isn't good for our kids, it's also not good for us as parents. And actually it's not accurate. And that's what I sort of unpack in the book. Um, I am not saying don't be ambitious for your kids. I'm not saying don't be ambitious yourself. I am greatly ambitious and I get a lot of joy out of my ambition and achievements. Um, but that there is a more, there is a saner path forward that takes this context and helps us understand these forces that are at play that are bigger than any one family, any one community, and what we can do at home to buffer against these big forces that are not serving our kids in healthy ways. Yes, and I definitely want to get to those buffers in a minute, but I'm curious first, what is the downside of what we're seeing right now when kids are pushed that they have to keep achieving and achieving and achieving? What are the consequences? So many consequences. Um, You know, at a young age, kids can develop what psychologists call a false self, which is, uh, you know, the biggest task for an adolescent is to develop this, you know, sturdy sense of self. And when you feel like you are loved or that the the parent's love is conditional or the teacher's love is conditional on your success, um, you can, or or presenting yourself in a certain way or being interested in certain activities, um, you can sort of set yourself up for a lifetime of creating a self for others. And that is not a sturdy sense of self. And that really sets you up. I'm sure you see this in your practice for a very up and down life where you feel good when you achieve, you feel down when you don't achieve, and your sort of self-esteem goes up and down like a barometer to your external achievement. There are sturdier and healthier ways to instill that sense of worth that's unwavering. Um, Anyway. Brainstorm. What's something that works so well that it's basically magic? Air conditioning, noise canceling headphones, meeting free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? (coughs) Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the did we just hit a million dollars stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash mentally stronger, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash mentally stronger now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash mentally stronger. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. 
But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a new language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's been teaching me Spanish, which is widely spoken in South Florida. I can now carry on conversations with my Spanish-speaking neighbors without having to use Google Translate. Babbel has already taught me a lot more than I ever learned in Spanish class in high school. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com stronger. Get 55% off at babbel.com stronger, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com stronger. Rules and restrictions may apply. And how much of the mental health crisis that we're seeing in young people today do you think is related to this? We see often social media is blamed for uh, kids struggling. We talk about the pandemic and how that affected them. But you have some evidence that this is also a big factor, right? It is. And and uh, two national policy reports, the National Academies and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, found that an excessive pressure to achieve, an unrelenting pressure, is contributing to um, you know, adding a new at-risk group of adolescents. So, you know, we we have known for a long time that children who live in poverty, children with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants, children living in foster care, these kids are at risk for negative health outcomes. But in the last several years, a new group has been added to that at-risk group, and it's these kids attending what researchers call high-achieving schools. Those are competitive public and private schools around the around the country, um, and I I wrote about it in 2019 at a time when my own son was in eighth grade and was about to head into high school, and I was thinking, what can I do to, um, you know, now that I know that these students are at at risk, and when I when I say at risk, uh, the research suggests they are two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder. And it's not that, um, you know, these are not short-term problems. It's not like, oh, these kids, once they get into college, this this sort of goes away. Actually, the researchers who've been studying this population find that this mindset, this never enough mindset can set kids up to, uh, to have substance abuse issues, you know, into their 30s. Wow. Um, that's a way of escaping the never enough mindset, right? Is, um, you know, the, the, the research and the students that I met when it comes to substance abuse, they were not drinking two or three beers, you know, to, to chill out and be pop, part of the popular group. They were drinking to black out and they were drinking to black out because they needed to escape the unrelenting pressure. And it's not developmentally appropriate to have this much pressure on children at such young ages. And it's sort of glamorized, right? When you have a kid who stays up all night studying and I see it in my therapy office that parents would be really proud of their kids saying, you know, that they're such a hard worker and they're doing uh, really well in all of their classes and they give me their grades and things like that. But then they'd bring their kids in because their kids are struggling with anxiety and wondering why their kids were having such a hard time. 
they're struggling probably with perfectionism. Right. Um, and I, I unpack that a bit in the book that, um, you know, as, uh, as researcher Thomas Kern at the London School of Economics calls it, you know, perfectionism is our favorite flaw you know, oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist. That's my right. flaw. But actually there are real consequences to this perfectionist mindset that I think um, children at younger and younger ages are adopting. And the reason people become perfectionists is because they believe um, that they will lose the love that they so desperately need for survival if they don't achieve. And so they adopt the, these perfectionistic tendencies as really this um, unhealthy coping strategy to get the love from their parents when they believe their parents' love is conditional. And do we know the long-term results about when these kids grow up and are still feeling these things? I mean, I think we have seen and, and research has found that there has been this huge rise in perfectionism uh, across generations. And it is, um, it is really damaging. Uh, anxiety, depression, you know, I, the book is, is aimed at these high achieving students, but um, the, one of the most surprising things I found in my research is that a child's resilience rests on the resilience of the adults in their lives. And so if parents themselves are struggling with anxiety, depression, perfectionistic tendencies, substance abuse disorders, they, you know, the, the number one intervention is, is to make sure that these parents have support systems intact, relationships, deep relationships of their own, where they can feel loved and valued. Uh, just the same way that we try to, you know, raise kids to feel loved and valued, the parents and the adults in their lives need to feel it too. And it's something that I think as a culture, we don't talk about, right? We're, we're talking a lot about the epidemic of, and rightfully so, of anxiety and depression among our youth. But we also need to be talking about the adults in their lives and they are struggling. They are struggling so much. They were struggling before COVID and they are struggling even more today. I absolutely agree. And I think we're now of a generation where we talk to kids about feelings and mental health has become more of a normal conversation. But parents will say to me, it's really hard to figure out how to talk to my kids about these things because I wasn't taught them. In my house, we didn't sit around and talk about my feelings when I was a kid or when we had a problem, our parents just said, deal with it. Or if I was scared of something, my parents would say, look, get over it. And so now we're trying to not do those things as parents, but parents are saying, but I also don't know what to do instead. I think it is, um, I was lucky to grow up in an, uh, you know, emotionally intelligent household where we were encouraged to talk about our emotions. But I would say that um, for parents, don't let perfection uh, get in the way. You know, just, just start having these conversations. For me, it's, I have found the most impactful with my own children is modeling uh, my own vulnerabilities, modeling my own failures, and modeling the mindset that I try in, in when I'm my best self that I try to, um, try to talk myself out of. So like, for example, when I was writing an article for, uh, the Washington post, it was my first article for the science section. And, um, I got my, um, my edit back and it was a lot of red. There were a lot of red marks. And my daughter the same day was struggling with an English paper. So I brought her over and I said, look, I said, writing is hard for everybody. 
Um, take the feedback from your teacher like I am with my editor and be grateful for it and think that these people are really investing in you. So I've, in, in order to help my kids in a developmentally appropriate way, I now try to live my life a little bit out loud. And I talk about when I'm nervous about something and how I'm, I, how I'm dealing with it, calling one of my best friends who always makes me feel good and always sort of, you know, bolsters me up. Um, and teaching kids how to reach out for help. One of, one of the most profound things I learned in researching this book was um, Edward Hallowell, who's a famous um, psychiatrist, said that the most important thing in uh, raising children or in helping anyone is this idea of to never worry alone. And so what I have adopted as sort of our family mantra is to never worry alone. If you're worried, call a friend, lean on me, talk to me. And my husband and I model that. I like that. Because what often happens is, is I'll have a kid in my office and we'll talk about feelings. And if I ask a question like, what does your dad do when he feels sad? What does your mom do when she feels anxious? Most of the time a kid will say like, oh, my dad doesn't get sad. Or my mom doesn't really have anxiety. So she never worries about anything because they've never talked about it. And as parents, like often the easy emotion to show kids is anger when we're frustrated or you lose your temper a little bit, like kids know. Mm -hmm. But it's much more difficult to say, you know, I'm kind of worried about something. And here's what I did when I was worried today, or I felt kind of sad when I woke up today. So I went for a walk, but to just talk to kids about those things that, yeah, these are all normal emotions and here's what I do with them. Totally. And and I will say that the, the, Emotion that people are least likely to express is envy because we feel ashamed of it. We have right. a shame that we are not measuring up in some way. And so I've really tried to normalize envy and help my kids look at it. Um, you know, researchers distinguish between malicious envy, um, where you, you know, feel envious and so you cut someone down or gossip about them so that you look better by comparison. But there's also benign envy. And benign envy, it can act as a motivator. It can help you un, you know, tap into ambitions you didn't know you had. It can help you, you know, study the target of your envy and figure out how they got to where they were. And maybe even reaching out to them and asking them how they did it so that you can sort of be raised up as well. So even emotions like envy can be talked about and normalized. I think that's so important for our kids that all of these emotions that come up in our competitive culture, these are normal emotions. We evolved. I mean, the way I talked about it with my kid, my kids, we evolved to feel envy. Like there's a reason that we felt envy. There was a competitive advantage to feeling envy. When we feel envy, you know, our minds focus on our envy target so that we can study what it is that they have that we think we need for our survival. And so instead of being ashamed and burying it and pushing it down, we can talk about it and give our kids the tools to deal with it in ways that strengthen relationships instead of tear them apart. There's tons of research that will show just that, that if you look at somebody as an opinion holder, as opposed to your competitor, you learn from them and you move forward. But instead, how often are parents like, oh, don't be jealous of that person or, or don't worry about what other people are doing on social media. Instead of talking like, what can you do when you feel those things? When you see your friends doing something really cool 
and you feel bad about it, what can we do? Or when you don't get as good of a grade as somebody else, how do you deal with that disappointment, envy, or embarrassment, whatever uncomfortable emotions get stirred up for you? Yes, exactly. And I think the more we do it, actually, what, what I have found so amazing about parenting is how much of my own growth as an adult has come out of it. You know, we think often that, you know, we all talk about child development, but very few of us, you do, but very few people talk about adult development and how, you know, in midlife, you know, when we're raising our kids, we are also developing it, uh, developing as well. And so having these conversations with our kids also kind of helps us to, to further develop. So I've embraced it. I like that idea too. I'll tell you something interesting I've noticed. When I speak to kids, sometimes I'll speak to a, a school during the day and I'll speak to the, the teenagers and then I'll speak to their parents at night. So during the afternoon session, when I'm talking to the teenagers, as I'll say, would your parent rather the teacher said you were the smartest kid in the class or the kindest kid in the class? And about 95% of the kids will be like, oh, my parents want me to be the smartest kid in the class. And then I'll ask the same question to the parents at night. And almost all the parents will say, I want my kid to be the kindest kid in the class. Whether or not they really do or they feel some pressure to say that in front of other people, I don't know. But then I'll say, you know, how often do you talk about kindness at home versus how often do you talk about what'd you get on your science test today? Or how's that math going? And, and I'll encourage them all to go home and ask their kid that exact same question. Like, what do you think I would rather hear the teacher say? The last time I did this, I had a parent who came up to me afterward and said, I'd like my kid to be both. How do I do that, please? Just it's showing, I think, the fact that even like kindness can become a competition for parents where they feel like, I need my kid to be the best in absolutely everything. How do we stop putting that pressure on kids when so much of their day revolves around academics and grades and how they're doing on sports teams? And a lot of our lives do revolve around achievement. Yes. I, so that was an exact question I asked to Sonia Luthar, who, uh, you know, up until recently she passed away, but she was, you know, one of the greatest living resilience researchers in the world. And, um, and I asked her, what should I be doing in my home? And she said, I live on a sailboat, which means my closet is pretty small. So I try to make sure the clothes I put in it are things I'm actually going to wear, but I need comfortable clothes to wear when I work from home, dress clothes to wear for speaking engagements and athletic clothes to wear to the gym. The solution to finding everything I need has been quince. Like the washable silk tank top I got for $50 and the cotton tank tops for just $15. Their clothing is affordable and high quality. The best part, all quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com stronger for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com stronger to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com stronger your kids, because I always, you know, I said to her, I feel like as a parent, I, I sometimes feel like it's my responsibility to make sure that they reach their potential. So how do I do that without, you know, overpressuring them? And she said to me, in our achievement culture today, kids are getting messages 
through social media, in the classroom, through their peers, through their peers' parents, all day long about achievement, achievement, achievement. She said, home needs to be the place to recover from that. Parents don't need to add on. Your kids already know that you want them to achieve. What you need to do is convince them day in and day out of their worth outside of the system. That they that their worth is unconditional and not reliant on grades and performance. And the reason to do this is because when our kids have, if you want to, you know, to that parent who wants both, a kid. Who, so what, in the book, I went I went looking for who were the healthy strivers, who were the kids who were doing well despite the pressure. What did their parents do at home? What was friendship like? What was school like? And the kids who did the best were the kids who felt like their value, who they were at their core, never fluctuated, that their parents loved them and valued them no matter what. And guess what? It makes sense. When you feel as a child that your worth is unconditional, you don't mind reaching for the higher goals. You don't mind failure. You can bounce back from it because it's not an indictment of who you are. So at home, you know what I have taken to doing is really making... My kids and I and I have a I could tell you a couple of things that I do that I learned from really wise parents that I met in my journeys. Um, one very wise mother hammered this home that your worth doesn't change no matter what. By um, whenever her kids had a setback, whether they failed, didn't make the A team, didn't do well on a grade, she would say to them, she'd go into her wallet and she'd grab a twenty dollar bill and she would say, "Who wants this twenty dollar bill?" And all the kids would say, "I want it, I want it." She'd crumple it up very dramatically squash it on the floor, make it dirty, and then dunk it in a glass of water and then hold up this soggy, dirty $20 bill. And she'd say, who wants it now? And the kids would say, you know, me. And she said, like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change. Whether you get cut from the team, whether you fail, your worth is your worth no matter what. And those, that message is so countercultural. And it's something that as parents, we need to hammer home to our kids that you matter no matter what. Um, you know, these, the one other thing I would say to this mother who wants everything, <laughs> the kindness and the achievement, right? Um, is what I have found is the secret to these healthy strivers was that they had what psychologists call a high level of mattering. Mattering is a psychological construct that's been around since the 1980s. Um, it was conceptualized by Mars Rosenberg, who brought us the self-esteem movement. And what he found was that kids who enjoyed a healthy level of self-esteem felt like they really mattered to their parents for who they were deep at their core. Over the years, mattering has been studied across cultures and across age groups. And the definition that resonates with me as a parent and one that I really would say to this mother to keep front and center in her parenting is that for kids to really feel like they matter, they need to feel valued, but they also need to be depended on to add meaningful value to others. So we can feel valued by our parents, right? But we also need social proof that that we matter. And the way we get that social proof is by being kind to others helping others, being recognized for who we are at our core, our character. Um, So what I would say to the mother is lead with mattering and you can raise a kind, high-achieving kid. 
That's just it. High achieving isn't the enemy. It's okay for a kid to be high achieving, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that just because you do well, that somehow you are going to struggle because not everybody who is a high achiever is a perfectionist or has anxiety. But how do you balance both? And I think just that, talking about kindness and for kids to know, when kids know like, you know, I could make a difference in somebody's life. It might not cost me anything. I could just smile. I can be the brave one who goes up to the new kid and says, hello. So many things kids can do, but they definitely need uh, a push or some encouragement sometimes from parents to find that courage and to know that that's important, that we're going to ask them about that too. Like, who were you nice to at recess today? Not just, how'd you do on your test? Exactly. Researchers who study, um, you know, goals and values and our mental health, this guy, Tim Kasser, who I had a long conversation with in my book, he talked about how important it was when you're raising kids in a competitive culture where, you know, there's a lot of um, materialistic goals, meaning not just logos and things like that, but materialistic goals are like self-enhancing goals. So, you know, wanting to get into the good college and all those things for yourself. What parents need to do is balance those goals with intrinsic goals, like kindness that we were talking about, like being caring, a good member of society. And the reason to do that is because his research and others have found over decades is that the more materialistic, the more self-enhancing you are in your own goals, the more you are focused on your own advancement, the more likely you are to suffer from anxiety, depression, and the more likely you are to abuse substances. People who have a balanced set of goals, who want those self-enhancing goals, but who balance them with being kind, contributing members of society, those are the people who can enjoy healthy well-being. And I would argue, and I don't even think it's that much of an argument, that if we want to raise successful kids, right? We want we want to raise kids who are successful over a lifetime, not you know, just successful to get into a short-term goal. We want to set them up for a lifetime of success. And that's what having healthy goals, a balancing goals does. And I think a lot of people confuse achievement for success. Yes, absolutely. They tend to think the more that you achieve, then clearly the more successful you are. That's exactly right. And I, I would also say that I think it's really important for us to talk with our kids about what we value and what we consider success, right? So I would very much tell you that I'm ambitious. I love my work, but I'm ambitious for more than that. I'm ambitious in my marriage. I want to have a great marriage. I'm ambitious as a friend. I want to have deep, meaningful, fulfilling friendships. Um, and so I think if we can talk to our kids about how we personally define success in our lives and also have a real reflective conversation with a trusted adult in our lives to say, you know, am I living the life that I want my kids to live? You know, if I say that family and friendships are a major priority are our families' lives set up in a way that really shows that? Do we make time for family dinners? Do we make time on the weekends to spend time with other families, our friends? Or are we so self-focused on, you know, going to the soccer game or going, you know, studying for the test that we don't make room in our life for the things that we say we value? Oh, I like that. There's research that shows too when kids were asked what's do your parents like to do for fun? 
they're more likely to find something that their dad liked to do, but really struggle with their moms. A lot of the kids, the vast majority of answers are like, I think she likes to do the laundry because that's what we do when we have a few extra minutes. Because mm. other than that, so many parents are running from one activity to the next and they don't have leisure activities or kids don't really see them putting time into those other things other than perhaps achieving or trying to help everybody else in the family achieve. And that's something I think we have to learn because I think we live in a society that really values the perfectionist parent, particularly mother, who is so self-sacrificing and does whatever she has to do for the well-being of her family and her kids. Um, And I had to take a hard look writing this book about how do I, um, you know, signal my value to my kids? How do I show my kids that, yes, I value them and yes, they are important, but I also am important. Um, and so I really, I, I took a deliberate effort to do that. So last question for you then, for a parent who says, all right, I have probably emphasized achievement way too much. Is there hope for them putting on the brakes and making some changes? Oh, I, there's so much hope. And I, I outlined tons of strategies in the book. Um, I would first, you know, first not be hard on yourself. I would say, you know, give yourself the context of why you're doing this. This is not something that's unique to you and your family. And then I would say it doesn't take huge shifts, but these small shifts that we could do every day, like instead of when they walk through the door asking about a test, ask them what they had for lunch. Emphasize other things in the home. Get to know your child for their for their unique strengths, their sense of humor. Stress how important that is and how much value they bring to your own family life. Stress the things outside of achievement that, um, you know, how caring they are, how funny they are, what a good friend they are. Really make it a point to talk about those things every day. Thank you, Jenny Wallace, for being here and for sharing from your book, Never Enough. I hope all of our listeners go pick up a copy. Awesome. Thanks so much. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Jenny's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that she shared. Number one, develop your own healthy relationships. We know from tons of research that social support is probably one of the biggest factors that determine our ability to cope with adversity and to handle stress. Yet it's not easy to find healthy social support. Take a minute right now and think about how many people you have in your life that you really feel comfortable talking to if you're going through a tough time. Don't feel bad if you say, gee, I don't have anyone, or if your list is pretty short. That's a problem for a lot of people. But don't feel guilty about spending time with friends or visiting family or joining an organization just to be around more people. Focusing on yourself and your relationships is not selfish. It's an investment. And Jenny points out that your resilience has a direct impact on how resilient your child is. Number two, talk about failures and mistakes. It's really tempting to hide mistakes and failures from your child because you don't want to be embarrassed in front of them or because you don't want to ruin their superhero image of you. But one of the healthiest things you could do for your kids is just talk about your own mistakes and the failures that you've experienced. Don't just talk about the mistakes that you made as a kid, though. Talk about a mistake that you made yesterday or a failure that happened to you last week. That can show your kids that failure isn't the end of the world and everyone makes mistakes, but that doesn't mean that you're incompetent. 
Instead, it means you're trying to do hard things. And when you talk openly about those things, you show your kids that you take ownership of your mistakes rather than hide them. And that you can talk to them afterward about what you did with that mistake. Did you apologize? Did you have to spend a lot of time fixing something that you messed up? Did you have to start all over on a project? Talking about those things helps kids learn valuable life lessons. And number three, show your kids that they matter. I love that Jenny talked about the importance of kids feeling like they matter. It's really easy to get caught up into focusing on things that don't matter as much as we think. Think back in your own life. Did the grade that you got on a math test back in the seventh grade change the course of your life? Probably not. But the choice you made to be nice to the new kid in the seventh grade, you might have actually changed the course of their life. Kids have the ability to make a difference in the world. And when we teach them that they have the power to make the world a little bit better, they'll believe that they matter, regardless of whether they get a perfect score in science. So those are three of Jenny's strategies that I highly recommend. Develop your own healthy relationships. Talk about your failures and your mistakes with your kids. And show your kids that they matter. If you want to learn more about Jenny's work, check out her new book. It's called Never Enough. If you know somebody who could benefit from hearing more about mental strength, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who was in the gifted class at school since the first day of kindergarten, Nick Valentine. Wouldn't you love to bounce out of bed feeling fantastic, even on a Monday morning? Well, the 5 a.m. Miracle Podcast is meant to help you do just that. It's hosted by productivity junkie, trail marathoner, and banana enthusiast, Jeff Sanders. The 5 a.m. Miracle wants to help you dominate your day before you eat breakfast. It will also help you create powerful lifelong habits and teach you how to tackle your biggest goals with extraordinary energy. Every Monday morning, Jeff shares actionable, practical advice on a different personal growth topic. He's conducted hundreds of interviews with high achievers over the years. Some of his recent episodes include the top 10 work-from-home tools and the top seven productivity strategies before bed. Subscribe to the 5 a.m. Miracle with Jeff Sanders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. 
Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.